Judges, as I said, chapter 18, verse 1 to verse 20. Now, it is January 2018. Uh, Gonzola Montoya uh, Jimenez, a prisoner in Spain, has been found dead in his prison cell. And because he's dead, three doctors uh, quickly have a look at him and they go through their processes and they certify him dead. And Jimenez, Gonzalo's body is quickly sent to the hospital mortuary uh, for a post-mortem. And after a few hours there, Gonzalo's body is then brought out to the autopsy table. But as the pathologist looks at Gonzalo's uh, body there, and he's about to examine him, he hears a strange noise. That doesn't sound right. What is that noise? Well, it sounds like the dead man is actually snoring on the autopsy table. It turns out Gonzola is not dead at all. He is sleeping. It seems the doctors have wrongly declared him dead. Uh, You see, Gonzola had tried to kill himself in prison uh, by taking a medical drug overdose, and the overdose sent him into coma, deep coma. That coma, coupled with the fact that he was suffering from severe hypothermia, meant that it masked his vital signs to the point of being declared dead. You see, if Gonzalo's body had not been brought out for an autopsy, after only a few hours, he would have actually probably really died in the mortuary from suffocation. Uh, the bizarre story which happened in January this year in Spain uh, of Gonzalo Jimenez is a reminder to all of us of the importance of getting a proper diagnosis for our condition in life. And yet as I thought about Gonzalo's situation, I thought, wow, there's something even more important, isn't it, than having a diagnosis for your physical health to ensure you are all right. And that is, of course... Ensuring you are spiritually healthy before God. Uh, you, you've got to get that. Well, that has to be right. You have to know that your spiritual health before God is healthy. How is your relationship with God? Would you say you are spiritually healthy? Do you relate to God on his terms as set out in the Bible? Or do you relate to God on your own terms? You see, many people have what I call a false religion. Yes, they worship God, but they relate to God on their terms. And sadly, they find comfort that they are okay. We are all of us here, Sajia, this morning, and the world around us in danger of this, making this mistake, having this false comfort in false religion. So this morning I want to speak to you about this false comfort of false religion. My goal this morning is simple, is to make sure you are not taking comfort in false religion. It's to ensure that every single person who walks through those doors, who has walked through those doors this morning, can truly say they take comfort in God himself, in spirit and in truth. So look with me at Judges 18 verse 1. In your Bibles. And most of you remember who were here last week that we looked at Judges chapter 17. 
We go through the Bible verse by verse and we looked at Judges chapter 17 last week where we met Micah and his mother. And Micah and his mother, you remember last week, they have started a new religion. They worship at home now. And they do that for themselves. They have, instead of going to Shiloh, they worship at home and they have hired the descendant of Moses, Jonathan, as their priest. We looked at that in the evening. And they are hoping to prosper from this. Judges chapter 17 ends with those words, isn't it? Now I hope the Lord will sort of prosper me from this, Micah says. Because he has had a Levite as a priest. Well, this morning we are picking up where we left off. So we start chapter 18. We look at verse 1 to see how this story develops. So that we can learn something about the false comfort of false religion. The first thing I want to say from verse 1 we see is that all of us want God on our terms. We want God, not on his terms. All of us want God on our terms. That's the first point. As we noted last week, this story, if you're not here last week, this story is an annex to the book of Judges. It is set in the early days of Judges. In fact, very early, probably just right at the beginning of chapter 1. So even though it's chapter 18, think of it as starting at the beginning. Israel has just entered Canaan. And you remember long, long, 42 sermons ago, you remember when Israel entered, entered, God had charged them to take possession of the land. If you like, Joshua had done all the donkey work, so to speak. You know, he had broken the backs of the Canaanites. And all that remained was for each of them to take their inheritance that God himself had allocated to each of the tribes. So it is a simple job. Joshua, if you read Joshua, he's done all the work. All they have to do is take possession of the land. There are a few remaining Canaanites on their portions of inheritance. So it's a simple work they have to do. Just follow God's plan. But when they get in, they decide, no, they know better. And what they do, most of the tribes, is that they decide to live with the Canaanites. And we looked at that in the early sermons. If you want to catch up on that, they are on the website. And the worst performer among these tribes is the tribe of Dan. The people of Dan failed to drive out the people who lived on the land God had allocated to them. In fact, <laughs> the Amorites start oppressing the people of Dan. And you can find out that from uh, chapter 1, verse 34 to verse 35. So they are being oppressed, the people of Dan, and after a while they think to themselves, well... <laughs> Why should we fight these Amorites? Let's just go somewhere else and look for land. So that's what they do. Look at verse 1 of Judges chapter 18, verse 1 to verse 2. In those days, there was no king in Israel. God is their king. That's why there is no king. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribes, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. Let's pause there. We see that they are sick and tired of God's command to drive out the Canaanites. 
They want to relate to God on their terms, not on his terms. And what they want to do now is to go look for a different land. God has said, this is the land you should have. They say, no, we are not interested in this. Let's go and explore for land somewhere else. They want God on their terms. They want life on their terms. And the truth is that what the people of Dan are doing is what all of us as human beings are by nature. You see, all of us here sat here this morning, we are born with an impulse to be our own boss. And it has been this way since Adam and Eve fell. If you know the Bible very well, you remember Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. How did the serpent test, tempt Eve? The serpent says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And if so, it was pleasing to her eyes, and she took the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband. The devil appealed to the idea that she could live life on her own terms. She could relate to God on her own terms. Humanity's motto is, I want to live as I want because I am what matters most, not God. And the Bible calls this sin. Soaring Kierkegaard said, sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. Paul David Tripp says the DNA of sin is selfishness. And it shrinks the size of my universe to the size of one. All of us want life to be about us. And even though we know this is rebellion against God, we all know that because Romans chapter 1 tells us, all human beings know there is a God. They have knowledge of God. And even though we know living like this, wanting life on our terms is rebellion against God, we don't think it matters. We're not running to God for repentance. Why? Do you know why? Because all of us think God will bend the rules for us. Yes, I know God says you must repent, but I think he will treat me different. I am special. It comes back to what Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. People don't repent because they have built their worth on themselves rather than what God says. Where does this idea come from? This false comfort that you are special and an exception to God's rules. Well, fundamentally from our sinful nature, going back to Genesis, but it is also from the false teaching around us. And that is our second observation. Observation number one. We want God on our terms. Where does this come from? Yes, from our sinful nature. But also because false religion offers God on our terms. False religion around us offers God on our terms. That's our second point. So we see here that the tribe of Dan, let's go back to scripture. Uh, Place play again. The tribe of Dan has sent out his spies to scout out for land. Uh, they start making their way northwards and they, they come to the most famous house in Israel. Let's read on this too. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And they arrived there, the Danites have arrived, and they immediately recognized Israel's famous grandson, Jonathan. Look at verse 3. 
When they were there by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young leopard. I guess Jonathan must have like a big ministry. He must be, have been touring around. And they recognized him. This is Moses' grandson. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? They are shocked to see Jonathan here because as verse 30 tells us, as I've said, he's Moses' grandson. He should be at Shiloh with the priest. He should be leading the priest. What are you doing here? You see, finding Jonathan here is a bit like one day you wake up, you drive to Woolwich, right? And you drive by the Greenwich Mosque in Woolwich. And who do you see there? Franklin Graham, you know, Billy Graham's grandson sitting with the imams. It's shocking. You don't expect Billy Graham's grandson to be sitting with the imams. And here Moses' grandson is sitting, if you like, among these idols. The Danites are shocked. What is going on here? That's why they asked Jonathan. And Jonathan gets straight to the point. Look at this form. And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. You know, I like the sinner's honesty sometimes. You know, Jonathan is honest here. He says, look, I know, I know I shouldn't be here. I am a sellout, but he pays my bills and I've got a good pension. This is what Jonathan, this is what Micah has done for me. The spies from Dan, of course, at this point, should run away from this man. I mean, he's corrupt, he's admitted it. They should run away like we send boats, isn't it? God is not with Jonathan, by his own admission. Instead, Jonathan's godlessness appeals to them. Look at verse 5. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. They want to know whether God, they want to know whether God will bend the rules for them. They know they're not supposed to be on this journey anyway. God has allocated the land to them. But they think they're special. So they want to know whether God will now bend the rules for them. They have not gone to the tabernacle in Shiloh for, to get an answer. They could if they wanted God to change, you know, if they wanted to plead on, on God to change his mind. That's why they are meant to go. But no, they have found a priest for them who give them the answer they want. They want God on their terms, and they think this corrupt priest Jonathan is a man to ask. And Jonathan, uh, as, uh, straight with his record, gives them what they want. Look at verse 6. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you, are going, you go is under the eye of the Lord. Jonathan is a false pastor who tells his congregation what they want to hear. Uh, he's not interested in offending them. He should say, look, guys, we're a mess. And to be honest, uh, I'm a mess here, and where you're going is a mess. I mean, you shouldn't be doing this. He could start off with his repentance like that. But he doesn't. He's worried about the congregation. He's worried about them. And so he tells them what their itching ears want to hear. As Beth Moore says, it is a pampered gospel. And you know, as I thought about this, this is what society wants, isn't it? The media says the church must modernize. We must change our message. We must become more culturally relevant or we will go extinct. 
When you listen to some of these media pandits, it's all about us and us. What we must do, not about what Jesus wants. The first religion of Jonathan, you see, is a religion of peace with sin. It is a religion of gay marriage, of gender by choice, of abortions. It is a religion that says we can do all of these things because what? Which is our choice to have God on our terms. And you know, there's a long list of theologians and pastors willing to back up that idea. You know, when the BBC writes one of these stories about, you know, what the, what, what the church should be doing, they always bring up some, some pastor somewhere who agrees with the idea that the church should change. Do you say it is a religion of Jonathan, a religion of accommodation in our own time? But it is also the religion of Christian television. As we noted last week, it is a religion of the health and wealth teaching of Joyce Mann, of Pastor Chris, of Maurice Salulo, of Benny Hinn and many others. That proclaim a gospel that is about us and God blessing us on our own terms rather than what God wants. It is the first religion of people like Sarah Yang and Rick Joyner who in their books claim they have received new messages from Jesus for today. It is the first religion of many churches around us, even in our own tradition, that promote a gospel that serves but never transforms sinners. Antimonianism. Cheap grace. The idea that you could say a sinner's prayer and be guaranteed heaven just because of that, without any radical change in your life. No, friends, the grace that is revealed from heaven, it, it teaches us to do what? Renounce all ungodliness, Paul tells Titus. And in the short time that I've been here, I have seen this false religion in many who have walked through those doors. Many who claim Christ, yes, on paper, but have no desire to really surrender to him. They'll tell you they love Jesus. I've met many in my last 18 months here. They'll tell you they love Jesus. But the moment you start talking to people about the importance of a changed life, they walk away. You tell them, yes, you love Christ, you tell me, but if you are converted, there must be change there. The moment you remind them of what the Bible teaches, they don't want to know. They'll say they believe the Bible, right? But if you remind them that the Bible also commands us, the same Bible you are there also commands us that we must be committed. We must be committed to the life of the local church. You must submit to its discipline. You must be in the church and engage in the church, committed to it, praying for it, be part of it, held accountable. These things are in the Bible. You tell them that. They struggle with that. They struggle with that. They'll say, I don't quite feel like that. Why is that? It's our sinful nature, yes. But it's also because the false religion, the false voices they hear, always provides that false comfort. And that is our final point this morning. 
at this point. We want God on our terms. And there are always false religion around us, offering God on our terms. There's always someone selling what we want. That's the second point. The third point is that this false religion provides us with false comfort. That is the tragedy. So let's go back to Jonathan. We see Jonathan has blessed the spies of Dan. And off they go. And after a long trek north, what do they do? You know, they're both, you know they, Jonathan, I guess, has prophesied peace. So, emboldened by that, they trek north very far. I mean, they are avoiding all sorts of people. I don't know how they know this is God's will. But they get there. They think it's God's will. They get there. Look at verse 7. The, the, then the five men departed and came to Laish and, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth. And now they were far from the Sidonians had no dealings with anyone. They have found what we might call innocent pagans, sinners, yes, but they are the most lovely people of non-believers you can come upon. That's what the author of Judges is getting at. These guys are better than the people of dance. They are peaceful. They live well. They don't bother anyone. They are like nice neighbors. Non-believers are wonderful neighbors. Who would attack these guys? But the, the spies of Dan thinks, no, this is God's answer. They are defenseless. God must have given us now this land. They pick on the innocent and they quickly rush back with the news. Let's read on verse 8 to verse 12. And they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal. Their brothers said to them, What's your, what do you report? What's your report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up again. Some of them are defenseless. For we have seen the land and the old, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to and unsuspecting people. You know, these guys are defenseless, they are saying. The land is spacious. For God has given it into your hands. No, he hasn't. I mean, they will take it by force, but this is not God's will. They go on to say, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, they don't really need them, but armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtar, and went up, verse 12, went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. So they have left, and they have left, and they have, uh, on their way there, they have camped at Kiriath-Jerim, you know, perhaps to look for supplies, and of course from there, they will then get up again to go. Now as they are going, as they said, if we can imagine on the way, they are probably discussing among themselves. Okay, fine. We've got this town of Laish. It's going to be easy to begin, but we just need to make sure. How do we know really that this is going to be a success? We can imagine the debate. And then someone perhaps among them suggests, look, to make sure this is a success, we need those idols at Micah's house. And we need our priest to help us. We need that man on our team to make this thing happen. God will then really bless us. So as soon as they arrive in Micah's village, they bundle through the priest's door and forcefully remove his idols. Let's read on verse 13 to verse 17. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, 
and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, and a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you do. And they turned aside, you know, perhaps not going to Michael's house, but they turned aside to the priest's house who's got these things. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, perhaps the compound of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Verse 16, Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with the weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. So what they're doing here now is that they're stealing their idols, and they also want Jonathan. So let's read on verse 18 to 19. And when this went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod and the house of gods, and the metal image, they said to the priest, that is Jonathan, what are you doing? Well, and the priest said to them, what are you doing? Verse 19, and they answered back, they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. This is the same deal that Micah offered, they are offering it to him, be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? They know his price tag. And they said, look, you're going to make it big. Do you want to be a local pastor or do you want to be like a major national pastor? Do you want to just be the archbishop? Do you want to be just a pastor or an archbishop? And Jonathan's eyes is excited. He's excited at the offer. Look at verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the house of God. We can picture him grabbing all of these things and the carved image and went along with the people. They wanted, I guess, to him, this is yours, you are a new man now. Uh, you know, this is the, what a turnaround for Jonathan. I mean, one minute he was facing potential job loss. I mean, if it doesn't go, the idols goes and he has nothing. But the, through that, now, he, next minute is the first archbishop of Dan. False religion has given Jonathan an earthly comfort he desires. He's going to be big now. And he wants that. And false religion has given the people of Dan a God they can control. A God they can even steal. And they like that. A God that they can manipulate. But friends, and we want to touch on this this evening. This is a false comfort, isn't it? It is a false comfort at so many levels. I mean, who would worship a God that you can steal? It's foolish. And look at that this evening. But it's a false comfort because the people of Dan really and Jonathan are under the curse from God. Deuteronomy 27, put this in your margins of your Bibles. Deuteronomy 27 verse 15 says this. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to the Lord. A thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. The curse of God is on any person Deuteronomy tells us, who practices any idolatry, who, doesn't, who worships God on their terms. 
And we see this curse is going to play out on Micah. It's already playing out on Micah, by the way. There's another interesting point, by the way, that Micah, of course, has been doing this, and his mother did this, to avoid the curse. But of course, they haven't avoided it because the idols now have been stolen from Micah and we'll see a bit more of what happens there. But the point is the curse is on these people. God's punishment is on false religion because false religion will see it will prove senseless. It will prove pointless in the end and God will ultimately judge Dan and the people of Israel. And the episode here is a warning to all of us here that in the end, friends, in the end, there is no good future in godlessness. No good future. False religion gives you comfort that you are in control, but it only provides false comfort. Because true worship of God is about submitting to his authority. I hope you noticed when my brother Ola started reading verse 1, he says in those days there was what? No king in Israel. The people of Dan are behaving as if there is no king in Israel. Yes, there's no human king. And that's why they're behaving like this. But God is their king. But they have rebelled against his authority. And false religion is all about that. But truly worship is about submitting to the authority of God as king. The question is this, friend. As you sit here this morning... Are you sure you have surrendered to God as your king? Have you? Can you absolutely say, as you sit here this morning, you have surrendered to Jesus as your king? Because it is Jesus you have to surrender to because the good news of the Bible is that the God of judges has come to us in the person of Jesus. That's what we learn at Christmas, isn't it? The king has come. The Magi reminds us that as they laid down those three gifts before Jesus. Jesus has come to offer us his kingship. Jesus is offering you this morning citizenship in his kingdom. To welcome you into his heaven. To have you seated alongside him as his very own. To share his life with you. To be in that union of spiritual marriage with him. If when you're in his kingdom, you inherit all his blessings. His life becomes your life. To be under his kingship means that Jesus now completely loves you. Completely approves of you. Completely accepts you. And completely delights in you. You are now completely But friends, yes, those are the blessings of the kingdom, but be not mistaken. There are no blessings just for anyone. There are blessings only for those who are bowed down to the king. Are you confident as you sit here this morning that you have surrendered your life to Christ? You live on his terms and not your terms. Can you truly say, I am a slave of Jesus and I am growing in surrendering to Jesus? You're not there yet, but can you say that? You see, friends, surrendering to Jesus as your king is not a metaphor. It means accepting that this world no longer revolves around you, it is all about Jesus. And do not be mistaken. The alternative to surrendering to Jesus is not another package being offered by false religion. There's no other offer on the table. 
except everlasting punishment. The choice we face is simple. We can live on our terms now, but when we die, we will still we'll live under his terms. And we will live under his terms in eternal punishment. You know, whenever I mention hell, I make this point all the time that we should always remember that hell was not created for human beings. That's very important. It was created for the devil and his angels. Friends, you are not fit to be in hell. You can't even last there for a minute. It wasn't made for you. God doesn't want you there. But if you reject him, that's where you are headed. So the pastor is talking about, you know, fire, hellfire and damnation again. But it's vital. You must hear it. You have to accept you're living in rebellion against God. And ask God to forgive you based on the death of Christ. Because your eternal destiny is at stake, friends. And only the cross of Christ, that blood-stained cross, is your only refuge. So turn to him in total surrender. Now some of you here have already come to that position of surrender. Well, if that is your position, it should fill you with thankfulness. You should be thankful. I'm amazed that the cross, for many of us, is a matter of just tick box. Christ has died and we move on. No, the cross should inspire thankfulness. Why? Because as we look at our lives, we see we are not better than the people out there. We are not. We are not better than Micah and these idols. We are not better than Jonathan. Our sin offends God just as much, friends. The only difference is that we now stand in the garments dipped in the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. The difference is that because by his grace God has looked out for us, we are now filled with his spirit. Oh friends, you were drowning in the river of human sin. Jesus, the one whose hands carry the scars of love for you, reached out to you in that river of sin. He lifted you out and gave you new life. He has welcomed you into his kingdom. You that. I don't deserve that. If you're trusting Christ, you should know you don't deserve that. Oh, how can Jesus love us so much? Why me? Why you? There is no answer. It just does. And that's why it is grace. And it should fill us with thanks. Friends, and the thankfulness, all those who have experienced this grace are energized. They are now energized to walk and talk with Jesus every day. We want every day to become more like him. Oh, friends, the gospel excites us. <laughs> we are not like, oh, the sermon must finish soon. No, we, 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 we want to hear more. Because why? Because this is what saves us, the gospel. And so it should energize us. And we energize, when we energize for Jesus, what happens is that we now 
want to pray more. Prayer then becomes our focal point. Why? Because we want to stand firm in true worship. And that means being constantly on our knees to our Father in heaven. So if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, be thankful and develop. Ask the Lord to energize you to pray, pray, and pray. Pray regularly and continuously for a heart of surrender to God in every area. Pray for greater sensitivity to sin and to forsake it right away. Pray that God helps you to love your Bible and know your Bibles very well. For God to give you a passion to come and study it together on Thursdays. Pray that God helps you to be committed to life together. We are stronger together, as we said, because as we grow deeper as a family, we become more accountable to one another and grow in the use of our spiritual gifts. But we know, even though though we are saved, sometimes we don't want these things. And so we must pray, pray, and pray that God helps us. We can do nothing apart from him. Well, may God deliver many from false religion and keep his people safe from false religion. Amen.